Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine. I'm Kim France. And I'm Talia Bacassis. Today we have Stacy London. Stacy is one of America's foremost style experts who is best known as the co-host of TLC's iconic show, What Not to Wear. Following that, she hosted and executive produced three seasons of Love, Lust, or Run. Stacy has written two books, Dress Your Best, which was published to stellar reviews, and The Truth About Style, a New York Times bestseller. Stacy is currently working on a variety of other projects, including one about intergenerational mentorship in the digital age and one on style and aging. Hey, Stacy. Hey, Kim. <laughs> How are you? Good. I feel like <laughs> you know, we've known each other for a long time, or at least like sort of orbited around each other for a very long time since Condé Nast days. Yep. I can picture you sitting in my office. Yes, I was at Mademoiselle and you were at Lucky. And then I think I came for a job at Lucky at some point. Yep, that is true. Did um, you get the job? No. She didn't get, th- she didn't get the job. That's what we're dancing around. <laughs> okay, no, sorry. I didn't get the job. I remember I wanted, I wanted a creative director title and you were like, nope. <laughs> yeah, we already had one of those. So. Right. Um, but tell us, Stacy, what was it like to go from being a magazine editor and a stylist to being a TV personality and one even with a shampoo commercial. Yeah, I know. I did a lot of ad campaigns over the years, but um, it was a little weird because that was never uh, my intention. And I think that there were a lot of people in the magazine community at the time when magazines uh, were much more powerful than television. And a lot of people said to me, wow, it's really too bad that you failed when I left magazines to go into television. And Mm. then about... Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, magazine editors are pretty snobby uh, as a bunch. And pretty pretty convinced of their own importance. Yes, exactly. And um, so when I first left to go to TV, you know, I thought it was going to be one season, 11 episodes, and then I'd go back to freelance styling and I'd be able to charge my clients more because I could say that I'd done some television. Um, (laughs) I did not expect it to go for 10 years 
years and 10 seasons and do Oprah and the Today Show and wind up on the red carpet for Access Hollywood. And I guess all in all, it wound up being a really good decision. (laughs) Um, Yeah. about, About five years after I started What Not to Wear, I started to notice that a lot of my magazine editor cohorts were angling for similar jobs. So there you go. Sometimes you don't know when you're going to lead the pack. No, that's really Hmm. true. Can we talk, though? Can we cut to the chase? You mentioned Oprah. You had an Oprah moment? Yes. Oprah wanted to do a spring fashion show on like the biggest trends. And so I wrote this outline about, you know, what I thought the trends were that season. And then they asked me to come and do the show. And I remember this was in her old studio. Um, We were shooting live. So we were shooting at 9 a.m. And I remember it was 6 a.m. And I was sitting on the stage with a producer next to me who was a stand-in for Oprah. And I just remember thinking, how did I get here? (laughs) And I saw a camera Mm. operator sort of turn his head from behind the camera and he was like, are you okay? And I realized I was, I was <laughs> crying. I was like, I had oh. no idea what I was doing. I feel like What Not to Wear was kind of like the precursor to Queer Eye. No, we actually started right around the same time. Um, well, okay. So I thought you might say that, but I guess what I mean is the precursor to the reboot. I feel like there were like the Queer Eye people and the What Not to Wear people. But in terms of the reboot, there's this really strong emotional component and that's what I feel like I had in what not to wear like where you really felt that you were trying to improve people's lives did you feel that at the time I appreciate that um I think that you know over the years what not to wear became what you're talking about became much closer to this idea of what queer eye is today the new the reboot um Yeah. Partly because of our directive, right? When it first started, What Not to Wear was a television show that was created for two fashion journalists in in England, um, Trini and Susanna. And they were a little bit more snarky. They were much more physical with their contributors on the show. Um, And so when I first started the show, the directive was the same. It was supposed to be kind of snarky, um, which was probably part of the reason I was hired. I mean, all those years at Condé Nast, you learn a thing or two. (laughs) But over the years, the directive changed um, for a couple of reasons. One, because there were many different heads of Discovery International, but it was also that Clinton and I started to change very much, and and I can't really speak for him as much as I can myself, in terms of the snarkiness, one, if you don't have an English accent, doesn't really wash the same way, (laughs) Um, one. And two, it was very hard for me to kind of continue to be snarky when what we really saw were, were sort of life-changing moments, um, not just on the show, but on moments after the show when old contributors would reach out to say how their lives had changed from the experience. And you couldn't mm-hmm. help but get caught up in that emotionally. And maybe because it was easy for me to be snarky and judgmental, um, it, it disproportionately decreased as my compassion sort of increased, not Mm. just for other people, but for myself. So a lot of the things that I I think I used to beat myself up about, it was very easy to see in other people, became this um, sort of almost touchstone of comparison and connection and compassion that, frankly, Mm -hmm. I wasn't even expecting to have. So, you know, this idea of take your work home with you, if we had a contributor who was really struggling with something, I really took that 
on very personally. Um, and it meant a lot to me to work with people where we were able to kind of give them a new sense of perspective and a new sense of self. And that became much, much more important as the show went on. And I think mm-hmm. that's where the connection between really this um, hope and desire to improve somebody's life um, with the connection that you're seeing on the new Queer Eye. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about some of that compassion and maybe the compassion that you feel towards yourself, because Kim and I were talking before about how you have really overcome a lot of adversity in your life. So for one, in 2017, you had surgery on your back to relieve years of chronic pain, and you had a very slow uphill recovery. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about how you got through that? Yeah. So I've had, you know, uh, s- slight back problems my whole life. Um, it was really in the middle of 2016 um, that I had gone tubing and that probably wasn't so great for my back. There's the possibility I had like had a tiny little compound fracture in a vertebra from that. And later that mm. summer I was on vacation and I went to sit up directly in bed and I couldn't do it. And I was having mm-hmm. some trouble taking steps. And when I got back, I went to see a bunch of, of uh, back surgeons at my doctor's request. And almost all of them said, you know, your back is in trouble. And we, mm-hmm. we, sh- we should put some titanium screws and, and plates in there um, or you're, you're really going to be suffering um, 10 years Jeez. from now. So uh, I went into this surgery like very excited and very eager because I had been in so much pain then for a couple of months. Um, and I really wouldn't wish spine surgery on my worst enemy, except for maybe Trump and like McConnell. <laughs> um, and the reason mm-hmm. is because it is both incredibly physically painful, but mentally and emotionally, it really took a lot out of me. It was about 18 months to recover completely. Um, I had to wear back braces of all different sizes. I had a walker. Mm-hmm. I had to learn to take steps again. But there was also something fundamentally changed um, about me. And really, as I started to kind of heal physically, I started to really decline emotionally uh, and wound up mm. with very, very serious clinical depression. Partly, it's because your body doesn't know that you made an, an active choice to have surgery, right? For all your body knows, you were in a car crash. And mm-hmm. there is this um, unbelievably deep sense of mortality that kind of freaked me out completely. So on top of the physical recovery, I really, I struggled with the emotional recovery. Um, and really just as I was sort of starting to get my mojo back, uh, my dad got very sick and I spent, you know, the better part of almost a year with him before he passed away. So there were, it was just a lot of back-to-back uh, trauma that, you know, sort of hurt me physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and also, uh, to be honest with you, I kind of lost any sense of ambition that I'd had prior to that. I just, I really felt completely burned out. Hmm. Well, your back is your foundation somehow. It, it just feels like messing with that could really, like you're saying, mess with your mind as well. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's actually, it was told to me, of course, after the fact, because they don't like to tell you that one of the side effects of spine surgery could be depression because they don't want to sort of suggest it to you, the power of suggestion. But when I finally said, like, I'm starting to feel crazy, like, I feel like there's something, I just felt like something was eating me from the inside out. I just felt nothing like myself. And, you know, having done some research and then talking to my doctor, anytime you operate on the brain, the heart, or the spine, your body kind of goes into shock because it thinks it is dying. And oh. so there are, there are, really? oh yeah, there are psychological ramifications around that. Uh, I am lucky that my back pain is so much less now and that, and the surgery itself was an incredible success. Um, I'm very fortunate since talking about it in public, um, I've met people and spoken with people who are on like their fourth spine surgery. It doesn't always work out as, as well as it did for me. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. again, with all of these things that sound traumatic and, I'm certainly not interested in having a pity party. One of the things that has really come out of it for me is that the the more honest and authentic that I've been about my struggles, the more honest and authentic people have been with me. And similar mm-hmm. to What Not to Wear, it has created a real sense of connection um, between me and people I wouldn't otherwise know. And that's right. that's something that's possible now. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Yep. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you deal with that depression and what keeps you what keeps you in a good place now? Um, well, I, I think it's a few things. I mean, I, I will will never sort of underestimate the importance of time. Um, I know that yep. that may sound like a little hokey and stupid to say, but really, for me, a lot of it was having to put one foot in front of the other and just you know, with therapy and good friends, um, and my family, it was, it was really a question of like a sink or swim in some sense of the word, like either you're making this decision to go forward or what else? I mean, what are your options? But Mm -hmm. definitely one of the things that I, I still struggle with, and you know, this is four years on now, um, I lost a lot of confidence, because of it. And I can't, I can't really tell you what the, um, what that moment was, what that precise feeling was. And it didn't really have anything to do with like physical appearance or anything like that. But there was this sense of having to try and claw my way out of a very difficult situation only to be plunged into another one. And uh, it, it really made me feel very, very helpless and that I somehow wasn't doing enough to kind of make things better. Um, and so in mm-hmm. some weird way, my confidence was really, really harmed by it. Huh. And that part hasn't come back to the same degree as it was before? Not at all. It really hasn't. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's something that uh, obviously I continue to work on. And the more that I talk about it and the more that I talk about mental health and the more that I talk about, you know, what I see as necessary conversations about aging, I definitely am feeling much better than I was. But but to say that I, I'm in the same position that I was sort of maybe when I left television would be a stretch. It's just been a very, very different five years uh, than I had seen for myself. And that is in some ways a blessing and in some ways a curse. And it certainly reminded me that, um, you know, not everything goes according to plan. And part of the issue with that is having expectations in the first place. I think that I've really had to kind of loosen up and sort of take a step back and be like, you know, expectation is, is the death of 
anticipation. It's the death of hope. It's the death of acceptance and gratitude for what is. So I try very, very hard to manage the kind of expectations that I used to have. Not because I think less of myself, but because things happen. And to put a value judgment on them does not make it any easier. I've never thought of it that way, that expectations are the death of hope. Yeah. Because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it li- well, I, I don't know if it's the death of hope. It it's the it's the death of possibility and it certainly is the death of alternate realities, right? Or like alternate futures. The minute you set an expectation on something, you've decided whether you're going to succeed or fail. And to me, Certainly for the last five years, success and failure have not been words that are applicable. Um, And I don't want to put that pressure on myself. I don't want to add that value judgment to what's happened because I think that makes it much more difficult and much more limiting um, in terms of the way I think about my progress and my future and my potential. Um, And so I guess maybe, you know, expectation is the death of possibility because it disallows for any other outcome. And that is not an easy way to live. I also think, I want to say this right, there's something about trauma. If I think about the the few times in my life when I've had serious trauma, it changes what you want for yourself also. Absolutely. It forces you to make a kind of evaluation that if you had not gone through the trauma, you would not be forced to make. You mean of like what's important in your life? Well, yeah. For me, it really was about taking a much closer look at my priorities, a much closer look at the way that I had been living my life, how I had been behaving with others. It really, it it taught me a great deal. And again, I would say, you know, I don't wish spine surgery on anybody. I know how hard it is to lose a parent for anybody. But these are also events that have helped shape my perspective of the world. And it's made me, I think, a lot more patient and a lot more more open to people than I, than I might've been prior to those things. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That was what I was thinking of when you said compassion for yourself also. Absolutely. It's probably made you feel much more, um, understanding of other people and of yourself. Yeah. You know, being gentle with oneself, I think is essential. It's essential at every stage of life. But I think certainly in middle age, there are so many components to women starting to feel less like who they are or less like who they were and not as accepting of who they are. And because these two sort of back-to-back traumatic events have happened at the same time that I'm experiencing menopause, that I am sort of seeking a career pivot, it's been, you know, an identity crisis. And I'm a little tired of the whole idea of a midlife crisis, and I am much more interested in having a midlife renaissance. But I kind of feel like you don't get to one without the other. And women my age, I think that, you know, we are starting to either deal with empty nest syndrome if we have kids. We're starting to deal with not just elder care, but the loss of our parents. And also to kind of look in the mirror and not completely recognize yourself and to, you know, have hormones wreak havoc on you. This is a tricky, tricky time for a lot of women. And that is across any 
socioeconomic background. That is just part of the fact that I think women are screwed by hormones their whole lives. Um, but there is also, for me, um, there's been sort of a bigger existential issue of the fact that, you know, now we have such longer lifespans. And if we're all going to live to be, you know, in our 90s or our 100s, we have a lot more time on the planet being old than young. And there, what are we doing mm. with the middle? What are we doing with these, with these pivots, with these crises in a way that allows us to evolve as modern women? Yeah, I want to hear more about the midlife renaissance. Yes. What do you mean by that? You know, forget about when you're at your, you know, on your last leg and drooling into your soup or whatever. What are we doing with the middle when we're experienced and, and conscious and evolving women who aren't 25? While we're still a society mm-hmm. that places so much emphasis on youth, on wealth, on thinness, and we still have such um, a bias towards aging. There's so much ageism that it runs rampant through any industry um, that we have got to figure out a way to redefine our own use value. And that's what that midlife renaissance is about. For me, I think it's about everything. It's about how you have defined yourself, whether it's as a mother, as a worker, as a wife, as a, you know, girlfriend, as, as whatever it is that you've been, you know, we have to allow for evolution at every stage of life. And I talk about that all the time in terms of style, but it's also this kind of readjustment of perspective at every age instead of the expectation that we can continue to stretch our youth spans along with our lifespans. But is it about people seeing themselves that way? Because I feel like most of the women my age who I know are on board with the, with the message that we have a lot of value, but it's the younger generation who are not on board with it. Well, you know, this is why I'm so interested in intergenerational relationships and mentorships, because I think very much that we have never been in a moment like this in history, at least not in our lifetimes as as women over 40. I mean, you saw how hard it was to get this call together to record it. I mean, I, the, you know, <laughs> technology is not my forte. <laughs> I'm 51 and I, I'm lucky that my girlfriend who is 41 knows how to use a computer because I have literally forgotten. You know, there's a lot about me that is a Luddite and I need younger people around me, not simply for issues like technology, but our whole lives have been upended by the technological revolution. You know, you can Google something and know the answer in less than, you know, five seconds. Um, And one of the things that I think is a huge issue between generations is that we did not have that kind of immediacy. So when we think about the world and we think about time, we think about the effort that we had to put in to get wherever we are at this age with our level of experience. That is not valued by a younger generation in which effort does not require time. So we have very Mm -hmm. fundamentally different ways the way we look at the world. And anybody can become a kajillionaire right now, you know, in terms of you don't have to work for 20 years to make a company successful. You have to find white space in the tech market and come up with some new form of Zoom and boom, you know, you've got a major (laughs) company that you can value for a billion dollars. So intergenerational mentorship is about understanding that women our age still have literally just practically more days on the planet than a 25-year-old. 
there are lessons to be learned there. There is experience to revere there. While we are all still working with this prehistoric brain of ours, they're starting to learn the world in a completely different way. And it's not just technology, it's social justice, it's racial issues, it's gender issues. Um, And I think that rather than sort of divide ourselves between the old and the young, I think we need to find a way to value both. And that, Mm. I think, is really essential for this moment in history. So what does this intergenerational mentorship look like in your life? Well, I, I have lots of younger friends and, and friends with kids. I, you know, I chose not to have children, but having friends who have kids who are 17 years or younger also gives me perspective on the way they see the world, on the things that they care mm-hmm. about, on, you know, even the kinds of products they'll buy, on what their value system is. I mean, you talk to Gen Z, not even millennials, and they have no interest in owning a home or buying a country house. They want the world to be greener. They care about the environment. You know, they care about climate change. They care about racial and social justice. The same way that I think these, you know, younger generations should be coming to us for the wealth of our experience in terms of human relationship. One thing that we haven't mentioned is your awesome podcast, Could Be Better TBH. Did yeah. I get that correct? Yes, you did. Thank you. Uh, which I really like. And um, on the episode you did with Busy Phillips, yeah. you mentioned that when you turned 40, you felt like you were hot and at the top of your game, but that turning 50 was another story entirely. Yeah. Can you explain why that was? Yeah. I mean, look, part of that, I think, was exterior uh, validation. I was, you know, the spokesperson for Pantene. I was doing Woolite and Dr. Scholl's and Lee Jeans. And I was on the Today Show and Access Hollywood and doing What Not to Wear. I felt very validated, I guess, in terms of my career choices. Um, But I also feel like I don't know what happened at 40. I just sort of I felt my best. I felt my strongest. I felt my most beautiful, both physically and emotionally. You know, I would say I honestly felt that way until about 47. And then things just physically started to change for me. And then there was the surgery. And then there was the death of my father. And it's funny, um, Hoda Kotby wrote a book called 10 Years Later. I think it's called 10 Years Later. It might be just called 10 Years but the difference that can happen to a person in a decade. And I think about the stark contrast between 30 when I was a magazine editor at Mademoiselle and got fired um, to 40 when I was sort of, you know, you could turn on your television and there was like a 30% chance I'd be on it. That it was a, a very, very different kind of existence. You know, I remember somebody saying to me, you better be careful, Stacey, because, you know, you never lied about your age. And so your earning potential is going to start dropping. And I really did not take that advice to heart at all. It didn't occur to Mm. me. It never occurred to me that my age could possibly play a role in my earning potential. And that's not to say that it necessarily has, but I I haven't been on full-time television in five years. And that could be because, I don't know, everybody thinks I'm a bitch and doesn't want to work with me. But it could also (laughs) be because I'm not 25. 
And I don't Mm -hmm. have 13 million followers on Instagram. And I come from a different time. And, you know, not for nothing, um, Tally, to bring back your point about sort of the new queer eye, part of the reason that I think it's been so successful wasn't just in the recasting. It was uh, really important. But it's also that it went from, you know, cable television to a streaming platform and was able Mm -hmm. to reach an entirely new, younger audience that really believes and lives the values of that show where they take on homophobia and they take on racism, which, you know, even at What Not to Wear, we were not really allowed to do. They are able in this new format to take on the issues that matter to the people who are watching. Right. I watch it. To take on social issues of the day, I don't even know if that's something that TLC would do now. You know, my 600-pound life and 90-day fiancé are entertainment, but they're not exactly um, taking on massive social issues. Or maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they're a commentary on social issues. Unclear to me. But um, (laughs) Maybe it's all happening underneath the surface. We're going to take a quick break for some ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Everything is Fine. Okay, now we're going to pivot a little because I feel like our listeners are going to want to hear your top style tips um, for over 40. What's your main advice there? Or do you have any? I don't know that I have that much. (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I think about ageifying a look, right, which is the only way I can describe it, um, it's not so much that I think that things necessarily need to be one worn differently. But what I do think is that there are a lot of women who either deny or overly embrace aging in a way that affects their style incoherently. So, you know, there are women who are over 40 who are like, that's it. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I mean, we're all wearing sweats this year. But, you know, just this idea of like mm-hmm. style doesn't matter anymore. Clothes aren't made for me. My body is changing. I, you know, screw it and just sort of give up. And then there are the women that I think who either because they are trained by the fashion and beauty industry to think that they have to kind of keep looking their best no matter what. I mean, I'll never forget the meme after the Super Bowl um, that was Rue McClanahan as a 50-year-old golden girl and J-Lo on a pole from the Super Bowl. (laughs) And everybody was like, this is 50. And it's true that since the 1980s to now, the way we look at 50 has changed dramatically But I do worry that that instills this sense of insecurity in women who don't continue to look the same way they did, even at 40, even at 30. and Or like J-Lo. But don't you think there's some consciousness that J-Lo looks that way because that is her job and because she's had all sorts of cosmetic procedures. Of course, but do you think that matters? I think for the average person who sees that, it's just another impossible standard that makes them feel bad. And uh, listen, I'm all for women working out as much as they want. I'm all for women having plastic surgery if that's what they want. Fillers, you know, whatever. But you just can't deny what's inevitable. So this whole anti-aging bullshit movement of moisturizers and creams and whatever and filters on social media, it may be comforting in the moment, but it's sort of avoiding the reality that we are going to be old and that there we're not legitimizing that in any way by filters and, you know, thinking that we all have to look to some extent like a JLo or try that hard. But it's not even JLo. I mean, Kim, you posted about that Nicole Kidman show on your blog, and I noticed that somebody commented about, like, how unnerving is it that Nicole Kidman still has a completely unlined face? Right, and, I, and, and that it doesn't move. Come on. I, I mean, I watched... But there was that's a documentary where... about the Go-Go's on Netflix. Every single one of the Go-Go's looked the same as they did when they were at the peak of their Go-Go-ness. It just makes you feel like you can't live up because you don't, I don't know, I don't have those kind of resources. And yeah, but go ahead. I guess I feel like a lot of compassion for the fact that the go and I'm sure you do too, for the fact that the Go-Go's felt that pressure. Well, they're not the Go-Go's anymore. Like, but why do they still have to? I'm really still, trying not to judge them, but I just mean it's part of the whole thing. They're still in the entertainment industry. They're still, I think, in L.A. They're still, you know, wherever you are, there are pressures, even if you're not like a, a top 40 band anymore. I think that's part of the issue. I think that we don't allow women to age gracefully as a society. We're not interested in watching women age gracefully. Yeah, we don't have realistic portrayals in the media anyway. No. 
And certainly, I think that that's part of the problem. And I do think that it is very easy for younger generations to write us off simply because we are not participating in this in the world the same way that they are. So it has nothing to do with looks in that regard, uh, more to do with the fact that like we don't have a zillion Slack channels and, you know, we're not streaming everything and we're not, you know, we're living in a very different way than younger generations are living. And I think because of that and because there is not enough understanding and connection, it's very easy to write older women off. And so that's also part of the reason that I think older women want to be like, oh God, doesn't she look fabulous for her age? It's a a way to earn respect. And for me, that's Mm -hmm. totally fucked up. You know, we are starting to see in in some cases, you know, we have more aging models in some campaigns. I mean, but again, you want to be careful that that's not a trend. In 2012, almost every major fashion house had an older woman as their campaign. Celine had Joan Didion, Marc Jacobs had Cher, uh, Givenchy had Julia Roberts. But if you do it once, it's a fad. If you get women of all shapes and sizes involved in campaigns that you still have young, thin women in, you really open the idea to diversity. It's not simply just a racial diversity that we want to see. It's an age diversity that we want to see. It's a gender diversity we want to see. And I think that there are a lot of brands that are starting to understand that. But it can't just be sometimes. It has to be part of the fabric of what we see every day. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time recently talking about Black Lives Matter, about the idea that, you know, you need to see, I mean, the fact that Kamala is now in the second highest office or will be in January is something that young girls of color will be able to look at and say, I can do that too. And we don't have enough middle-aged women seeing versions of themselves where they feel like I can do that too. I mean, frankly, I think Nicole Kidman is a great actress who has done herself a disservice by not being able to move her face. And Mm -hmm. that is, we are not sending the message that it's okay to be who you are as you age and accept that. You know, come as you are, not who you were, is not a standard by which we live. But you look at like the English, look at Olivia Coleman, look at Fiona Shaw. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. a completely different set of standards. And we are a glitzy, glossy, capitalist nation that, you know, prizes certain things over others. And yet there are, you know, places in the world where age is revered, where it is an essential part of, you know, what it means to be an active member of society. And, you know, the, the wiseness of elders, the, the wealth of knowledge of elders is something that I really feel is missing for us. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Another thing you said was that you think we should be celebrating menopause instead of bitching about it. Absolutely. Now, why is that so hard for women to do? I think the barrier to celebrating menopause is shame. Honestly, if you think about it, shame and fear are the only things that stop us in life from doing anything. And in my opinion, shame about menopause is because we are experiencing a kind of grief. We are we are saying goodbye to that idea of youth where you are a, you know, sociobiologically procreating creature and you are suddenly robbed of that. 
and therefore society looks at you in a different way. But first of all, that's a patriarchal, sexualized, objectified lens. It comes up so often on this show that like as soon as you lose your sexual relevance, you've lost all your currency. Right. You're the fuckability factor. And frankly, Mm -hmm. I think that is a very antiquated way to think about women generally and certainly not the direction that social justice is moving into. And I think that it's something that, look, menopause is hard. And to pretend that it's like easy and breezy, and even if you're taking hormones, which I am not, you feel like you're getting away with something, that it's not as hard for you. But frankly, I think if we're not going to celebrate our own menopause, then who the hell is going to? So I am Mm -hmm. all for throwing menopause parties and having people buy me presents, because guess what? Like the brain fog and the weight gain and the mood swings and uh, night sweats, none of that is fun. I got to get something out of (laughs) it. this. I joked around um, in a piece that I wrote that there's no reason that the word men should be in menopause. They don't get it. (laughs) They don't deserve it. They don't get to reap the benefits of it. And, you know, I mean that by the fact that we should be celebrating ourselves at every stage of life and recognizing that two things can exist and be true at the same time. That menopause is hard. That menopause is a very difficult experience for women to go through. And whether it's hormones hormonal or not, it is a crisis of identity. And we can still know that that's true and still go ahead and celebrate ourselves. We can, you know, look for ways to make this a much bigger celebration of what's to come than what is ending. Because we're not going to die in our 50s. We're going to die in our 90s. That's 40 years worth of amazing shit you can do. So the idea (laughs) that this is like some awful curse. You know, now we're starting to talk about your period and how you don't have to be ashamed to carry a tampon to the bathroom. And I'm like, well, you don't have to be ashamed to not carry one. Think of all the money you're saving in sanitary (laughs) napkins and, and, and tampons and cups and underwear and whatever. Buy earrings, you know, have a good time. And it really <laughs> pisses me off that we're, we're just not there in the conversation yet. Yeah. <laughs> Kim, what were you going to say? I was all like, yeah, do some amazing shit. Yeah, buy yourself some amazing <laughs> stuff. Go, no, go. no. My only but was, and I'm thinking this because just of something that happened in my own life recently, um, one of my closest friends, best friend, dropped out of a heart attack at 55. Oh, she God. was very healthy. She, I mean, obviously not, but she ran. She ate right dropped out of a heart attack and I feel like that's another piece of being this age is that like you are facing mortality like you do begin to know the odd person who like didn't make it of course that I feel like that's a very sobering part of being this age of course of course I think now we are on the front lines of mortality you know our parents pass away Um, And we are now at the age where, you know, it's the inevitable realization that we're next. And that doesn't go away. Um, But I think that based on, you know, the fact that women are living longer than men in the first place and that our lifespans generally have grown exponentially in this last century, we still need to think about the fact that, well, you know, the odd person, yes, in our age group is going to die. Incidences of breast cancer are much higher. Um, I do think we need to look at the bigger picture, which is that we aren't at the age that we are going to, for the most part, start dropping dead just 
just yet. And the fact is that with that extra time, we spent all this time being young. We have to be comfortable with what it means, not necessarily to even call it old, but older. And, you know, everybody thinks being old, a little old lady, a little old couple, they're so cute, but nobody wants to age. And aging is a necessary and vibrant process if we allow it to be. We are the ones who are sort of cutting off our noses despite our face by saying, that's it, I'm done at 40, at 45, at 50. You know, I'm irrelevant. I'm invisible. These are not the things that we should be reinforcing. That's what society is going to say. Well, let's do the opposite. It's time to be visible and it's time to be um, taken seriously and revered for what we do offer. Even the transition that's physical should be celebrated. I don't think that there's any leg to stand on that this idea that women have lost something after 40 or 45 or whatever it is, menopausal women who can no longer procreate. I mean, what an antiquated, unbelievably stupid idea. You know, there are tons of women who ever since the sexual revolution decided I'm not having children. That doesn't make them any less female. Um, you know, there are tons of, of, of trans people who don't associate a time limit with their gender. And I don't know why we think that this is something that we should be adhering to. You know, also, in particular, gay men have always felt this like need to always look their best. There's always been this comparison between gay men and women that were so concerned with the way others see us, particularly through a sexual lens. And to me, that just has nothing to do with the aging process. Things are going to change. You know, I always joke around about the fact that the only thing I want dry in my 50s is a martini, but we (laughs) still have to honor what's happening to our bodies and move with them, change with them, and enlighten other people about what this means. Because everybody's going to get here. Everybody who's lucky enough to live is going to get old. And I don't see why we don't treat that with more respect and more excitement. Stacey, I loved everything about this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad. I feel like I did a lot of talking and it wasn't really a conversation. I apologize. No, 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 it was great. So our parting question is, do you have one product you can't live without or a life hack currently helping you? Okay. So um, just two things to say that I missed before that you asked me directly. All I would say about the way women should style themselves after 40 is really to be true to yourself and to listen to yourself. And no, give yourself permission to allow your style to evolve. When I was 47, I wrote an article about the fact that I stopped wearing the kinds of clothes that I had been wearing on What Not to Wear. I wore those clothes because that was sort of what I thought was good for an American TV show. But that certainly wasn't my entire life or personality. And at first, I thought I was going to let people down if I started wearing, I love wearing suits. And I thought that people would be disappointed if I wasn't wearing Mm. skin-tight pencil skirts. And you know what? I never realized that, of course, my style was going to change because I'm changing. I'm evolving. So I would recommend to your listeners that their style be based on a true and honest understanding of self-awareness and self-acceptance. And know that evolution is always happening so that you may not want to wear what you wore 10 years ago. And you don't have to try. Your identity isn't tied to one particular outfit or one particular style in your life. 
life. Your style is always about and reflects the identity that you're currently in, which evolves. So that's mm-hmm. the, the first thing. And the second thing is the product that I definitely cannot live without is a night oil called the State Of. It is a skincare line for perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. And this night oil, I'm big on oils and gel-based products. I don't like heavy, heavy creams. This mm-hmm. night oil is like life-changing. That's all I can say is that it's like change the texture of my skin. (laughs) And I'm not saying it makes me look younger. It makes my skin look healthy. That's what I care about. Okay. Wow. I'm sure we will get a lot of requests (laughs) for the links to that. Well, I think it's um, menopause.com is where it is. It's called State of Menopause, but really the labels and everything say State of. And to me, one of the reasons I also love that brand is because... State of what? State of where? Where mm. Where are you in your life? What state are you in? Um, and how can we celebrate? I, I really believe that, you know, I don't think I'll turn the tide by myself, but these are the kinds of conversations that we should be having. And these are the kinds of, um, the two of you are the people that I want to be talking to because I'm mm. not going to bullshit anybody and say that it's easy to go through these changes and transformations, but they're necessary. And the same way you would take on any hard task and know that it's going to be hard and do it anyway, that's what living and aging is. I feel like people are really going to want to find you after this conversation. So where should they find you? <laughs> well, I'm mostly on Instagram for the most part because I can't be bothered with any other social media platform so i'm just at stacy london no wait aren't you at the real stacy london or something oh right i'm at stacy london real i'm I'm glad you know i don't know at all (laughs) stacy thank you so much for coming on it was my pleasure guys i'm so glad it all worked out it was nice to talk to you thanks so much for listening to everything is fine we are your hosts talia bacassis and Kim France. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, email us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.